I don't know if people still read like Sleeping Beauty and stuff to their kids. I mean, I did. But, you know, there is no Prince Charming. There's no Princess Charming. There's no Charming. There's you. And your partner isn't your plan. We as women need to change that narrative. Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy, or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts, and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Let's go. Hey, you're on air with Ella, and today I am joined by Kimberly Davis, and I hope you are buckled up. I hope you're seated. I hope you're comfortable because we are going to blow some minds today. Hey, Kimberly, welcome to the show. Hi, Ella. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm just thrilled. I've listened to some of your podcasts, so I feel like I'm now in a you know starry lineup of great people that you've talked to in the past and important issues. So thanks for having me. We have a lot to talk about today, and we are just jumping in both feet. Kimberly, could you tell everybody who you are and what you do? So I am a uh, wealth manager in my professional life. Um, I'm a managing director and partner in a wealth management firm in Newport Beach called the Bonson Group. We have offices in uh, New York and several other places in the United States. So that's my day job. I'm also um, a mom of three children who are now no longer children. So 28, 26, and 31, all all women. Uh, So they're my ready-made audience for the fiscal feminist. I am an ex-wife and now I'm another wife again. I've been a professional stay-at-home mom. Uh, I've done pretty much everything you could do in because I'm I'm old, so I have had a long timeline to do a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I've had multiple careers. I was a you know, I was a corporate securities lawyer in the 80s and then an investment banker. And then I also had a fashion business that I had in London called Kim Davis London, and we sold all the clothes to Saks Fifth Avenue. So I've done a whole bunch of different things. Well, first of all, you are not old. You are tenured, madam. I am tenured, (laughs) hopefully for a long time. So I'm just getting started, girl. You wrote this killer book called The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. And we're going to talk about some of the principles shared there. And we're also just going to go through question after question submitted by the listeners. I cannot wait to get to that. But you left one qualification. You probably left a dozen qualifications off the table. But I'm dying to ask you about this one thing that I read about you when I did my deep dive into Kimberly Davis. And that was, you are a certified divorce financial analyst. And I just want to know what that means. So within the wealth management firm, you know, realm of the world, there's like financial advisors, right? And in in that whole thing is a bit iffy anyway. It's anyone can you can work at an insurance company, you can work at a portfolio management and still use that term, even though you may not be a financial planner or you don't really understand portfolio management and you're kind of uh, assigning it out to other people to do. Um, but the thing is, most financial advisors and often even family lawyers are not adept at the economic aspects of financial, the financial and economic aspects of division of assets in um, a divorce. So it really is a deep dive educational program. You've got to take a year's worth of courses, pass a whole load of tests. And all of these things um, help you get kind of a 
more bird's eye view, a more granular approach to how you split up assets. Because if it's not done right, it can have some very long-term consequences to the person that it doesn't do right by, which is often a woman. And um, it can really affect your retirement and it can really affect so many aspects of your life. So it's just a specialty about divorce finance and it helps also with forensic accounting and things of that nature. Well, I have a sense, I'm just intuiting that part of your life experience led you into that additional focus in your very varied career. And the reason I say that is because you're very open about the fact that you were married for more than 20 years. You're living in England and with your husband and your three kids. And then suddenly you're divorced. You're moving with your kids to California. And I believe you had, I believe they were in university at the time. You're paying tuitions. Yeah. So one was in university. Um, two were in high school and originally, the idea was that they would go to public high school, and but they had been going to private school in the United Kingdom. In the end, they ended up going to private school. So they already had been so disrupted. They wanted to move to the United States. So it was all very discussed, but it's still disruptive. You know, they that was their reality. The bulk of their lives as they knew it were in, it was in England. My divorce well, first of all, I wasn't even a wealth manager when I was going through my divorce, right? So I was still trying to get acclimated and I hadn't worked in the United States for all, over 14 years. And I moved to England because my husband's career at the time, he was asked to go over there for two years. He had two passports, so he didn't need work papers. And in the end, he still lives there 30 years later, but we never came back. And that had a very detrimental effect on me. And all the things that I gave up, um, when we went through the divorce proceedings, I realized how uninformed I was, how I had no protections in place. Someone with my background, you'd think would know better, right? Securities lawyer, investment banker, business person. Uh, no, I'm still a mom, still busy, still worrying about everybody else. So I was really on the back foot. And then when I got into wealth management about 10 years ago, luckily, because it was the perfect confluence of uh, all the things that I'd done in my past. So it could use all those skills. I realized through even my wealth management practice that a lot of women, whether they're widows or they live on their own or they're single by choice or they're divorced, they experienced a lot of the things that I did. And there were similar scenarios. And what I really wanted to do was reach out to women of all economic strata, because those are the women that are going to really be affected by things in a deep, deep way. They don't have all those assets to kind of make mistakes and ride the tide with. So I want people from, I don't care if they're in Gen Z, I don't care if they're millennials, I don't care if they're ancient and older than me, whatever it is, it's never too late to get your shit together and to financially and understand and empower yourself that way. And I wanted everyone to know that there are some basic things that you can do, whether it's in as a young person, as someone who's contemplating divorce, there's a pregame strategy that you should definitely do, whether it's an investment strategy or just career choices in relationships, all of this stuff, nobody's ever talking to women about. So I wanted to write the book and I wanted all women, not just rich women to read it so that if I can make, you know, prevent one woman from having, making some of the dumb mistakes that I've done and I can make her life slightly better down the road, then I will feel like, you know, my mission is accomplished. You use an analogy that I really relate to and I think is very relatable. What does it mean to be a financial athlete? Oh, yeah, I love, I love that term. I have been working out my whole life, right? And 
the older I get, the more I'm also working out, trying to stay fit, stay strong, heart, good recovery, lose weight, you know, the whole nine yards. But one of the things that I know about all of that stuff is that it doesn't happen overnight and it's not easy. You have to work at it. It's a building block kind of situation. Financial health is very much like that. And, yeah. and that's the thing is people want everything to, you know, they either want to get rich quick or they don't want to put in the hard work to learn the things that they need for the tools that they need to have to be really financially adept and empowered. They're not hard. They just take a little bit of personal time and sometimes grit and sometimes facing realities that we don't want to. So if I get on the scale and I weigh more than I want, or my recovery time when I'm running is not very good, means I have to work harder at it and do some special training and learn what those tools are. The same thing for financial athletes, you know, they have to approach it like a training situation bit, bit by bit, they'll get stronger and stronger. And before they know it, it'll be second nature and they will feel so good about themselves when they have knowledge about what's going on. And it doesn't mean that they can retire at 40 or 35 or all that other, you know, nonsense that people talk about. It's about knowing that if something happens out of the blue, or you want to pivot in your life, you do, you're fed up and you want to, you know, go do a new job or just whatever you can do it. And you have some space and freedom to do it. And the whole house of cards won't come down. You're buying yourself the grace and the space to explore other options. Yeah. I think that this is critical for several of the reasons that you mentioned. And there's another, there's another reason, if you will, I think that people shy away from taking the steps to build that financial athlete muscle. And that is avoidance because of a level of discomfort. And what I mean by that is how many people right now that are sitting in on this conversation with us, how many of them were sat down by a mentor or a parent and really like their financial literacy was developed and they were equipped with the tools and the skills and the knowledge and the know-how. And I mean, my, my parents were not irresponsible in that category, but there's so much I still don't know, but there's so much that I did not know when I started earning money and needed to right. start taking care of myself. Like, I think it's very easy to be intimidated by this subject simply because of a lack of exposure. Do you find that to be true? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the historical narrative for women has been that they have not had the same conversations that we would have maybe with our sons. And, and I'm not, it, it's, it is a kind of a female exclusive problem in the sense that, you know, historically uh, women didn't own property until, you know, really the late 1800s. I, and I, I graduated from high school in 1976, at which time women could not get credit cards on their own without the signatory of a male, um, whether it was a brother or their husband or God knows who else. And that wasn't that long ago. Okay. I mean, and we still are seeing, you know, uh, certain anachronistic values that have been inculcated in our heads. Both men and women believe these things. You know, there's a thing called the motherhood penalty. And if a mother is if someone's becoming a mother, her pay goes down 4%. If someone's becoming a father, their pay goes up 6%. Because we still believe in this society that men are the male, that they are the main providers. We're over 40, almost 49% of breadwinners now, main bed are women. And, and still they do 75% of the work in the home. So we still have these values and we don't really talk to our daughters 
and in the educational system, we don't explain these basic financial concepts. We don't really talk to my, uh, that much about money with girls and uh, young women, and we should be because um, they are living longer than their male counterparts by four or five years. And they, most women at some point are going to be the financial caretaker of their families. And so it's not only for the sake of women, but it's for the sake of our economy in general and society. But we have not had that narrative. And the other thing, you know, is that I've written about in the book, which I totally blows my mind, is when women are primary breadwinners and make more than their husbands, many of them, almost half of them, lie about it. And they big up what their husbands make and minimize what they make. And they don't own up to the fact that they make more than their husbands because they feel bad about it. But, you know, it's just in our brain, we've all been trained to think a certain way. And I think we're making progress, you know, but it's it's very slow. I don't know if people still read like Sleeping Beauty and stuff to their kids. I mean, I did. But, you know, there is no Prince Charming. There's no Princess Charming. There's no Charming. There's you. Um, and your partner isn't your plan. But we as women need to change that narrative. And we need to be able to talk about money and not feel bad about it or not think it makes us less attractive or less beautiful or less sexy or any of those other things. Um, it makes you just, a, it just makes you an informed person. That's it. Um, so I think your, you know, your point is well taken. We as people do not educate our children, both sexes with, we should have financial education in high schools. Um, and, and I think a lot of it is we as parents may try to impart to our children, but if, if we're if we don't know what we're doing, what are we imparting to our kids, right? Yes, to close the loop on the financial athlete analogy, to me, I have some unpopular opinions, and that is that I believe that each of us should try to achieve a state of health and fitness that is right for us to fully enjoy our own power and this gift that we have in our physicality. So whatever level that looks like for you, and it's different for everybody, I believe we should all make an effort to care for our physical selves because I believe we can create more value in the world. And frankly, we should be for our own sake. So that's one controversial opinion I have. And that relates to my same philosophy with money. I firmly believe that every person should try to earn or be autonomous in some way, or at the very least, and be recognized for the labor that they are contributing, the unpaid labor that they are contributing. But instead, we do and we do and we do. And we many women listening don't get that recognition or it isn't valued or they don't even value it themselves. So I'm not saying right. everybody should be out there earning a paycheck. That is not what I'm saying. No, absolutely. That, and I agree with you because one of the things I mentioned, you know, when you have a money conversation with somebody who's your significant other partner or whatever, is it if one person steps out of the workforce, they are still both stakeholders in their financial lives. So just because one person, that's the deal they're making. They have a contract, right? And we can get dip into this a little bit more when we talk about prenups. But um, basically, you are a, this is something that I didn't do. And, and I am just so mad at myself. I could rewind, go back in time. But um, I never felt like I was a stakeholder because I, even though we at the beginning were completely equal, we were both lawyers we were both investment bankers. We both made, in fact, at one point I made more money than him. But, you know, then when I stepped back, I started to feel like I wasn't a stakeholder. It was his money and he was kind of sharing it with the family. And that's just not correct. 
And that was up to me to say in a conversation, hey, I'm doing all this invisible labor. If you took a commensurate, uh, say, you know, what a nanny would cost, what a cook would cost, what a cleaner would cost, right? Um, that is what I am doing. And you, and maybe if we have additional help, it doesn't matter. I'm still doing a lot of the, the stuff, right? So I'm just saying that is everybody has to acknowledge that they are equal st- stakeholders. They're just doing different things. I don't care if it's a stay-at-home dad or a stay-at-home mom. You said it better than I could. What I want to encourage is not self-criticism, but self-empowerment and say, I think it feels really good even when you're working on an endeavor that can bring you in a few hundred bucks, you know, your, your wine money that month. Um, I, I think right. that that exchange feels good. And I do encourage people to really explore that for themselves if they are not in, you know, the business world, so to speak. But Kimberly, you're highlighting the greater point here. Those who are not out there earning, so to speak, are still stakeholders and should not opt out of that conversation. They should be 100% at that table. Yeah, they have a absolute equal vote. There's no, nobody can pull rank. And, but this is something that women or whoever's the stay at home person, yes. I don't care who it is, that you need to establish that and have that conversation and not be afraid of it. And before you make the choice, to do that, to stay at home. And I have a whole thing in the book about evaluating that decision and what you need to put in place before you do it, or think about at least. You should be thinking about those things and you should also be having that conversation with the other person involved so that before anybody stays home, they have an agreement and hopefully that agreement is somehow memorialized in writing. So at the end of the day, what I think your book does really well is it's such, I mean, it's a manual. It's such a, it's such a great entry level, useful book for people who are just getting started equally. If you have already been in the game for a while, there is so much richness here and a lot of resources. So I will definitely, I'm going to share the hell out of this book. I'm super excited about it. But what I want to get into with you now is listener questions. Hit me. Okay, so let's go. Here we go. My neighbor is an accountant, and he told me that he runs a credit card balance every month to build his credit. I thought this was a no-no, but he is an accountant, so maybe he knows something I don't. Kimberly? That is good advice, as long as you do it right. So if you have a credit card, and you use it, and you pay the balance off every single month, and you don't carry credit card debt and pay interest, then that is a very good way to build up your credit. And, you know, credit is so important um, on so many levels. So one of the five, you know, when I, in chapter five, I talk about how to fundamentally get your personal finance in order. And one of the things is to think about your credit because credit will affect every other aspect of your life. So for example, um, my young daughter who's in law school, uh, she is working in San Diego and living here this summer while she's doing that. She got an application, they sent her pre-approved thing for weirdly a platinum card. And I said to her, well, I think it would be good for your credit if you applied, but you cannot use it like a crazy person. And, and actually she is so frugal. Like I, sometimes I wonder, cause I'm frugal up to a point, but this, this girl is super frugal. I don't know where the DNA is not for me. Anyway, I said to her, if you pay it off every month, you know, I've had my American express card since 1983 when I started practicing law. And so that, you know, stays with me. 
So the only thing is, is it, it's, you have to be disciplined. If you get a credit card and you don't pay it off. And then one other point, which is kind of a non sequitur, but not really. I was using my debit card specifically for many years until about three or four years ago. Cause I, I like the idea of a cash cash flow kind of thing going down. And so I could see the actual cash flow and that I wasn't having any debt running. Another reason that I don't I don't do that anymore, uh, only because my identity got very compromised by people uh, being able to steal my debit card, which then they got into my access to my bank account. So now if I have to stop payment on something or whatever, it's easier to go through an American Express or MasterCard or whatever you're doing, because then you're protecting your bank account. So um, he is correct, but he has to add on the end of it, get a credit card and pay it off every month. I'm so glad you said that. I almost had a coronary event and here's why. He carries a credit card balance every month. I think I didn't read the question. I don't think I was clear. He oh, carries why he, no, no, I would not know. And I, look, I'm not some crazy frugal, you know, penny pincher. Okay. I like a Jimmy Choo shoe as much as the next gal, but um, best practices. And I write endlessly about this in the book is that you do not carry credit card balances. And if you have credit card debt, before you start investing your money, you need to get rid of the credit card debt. And then you need to start your savings, your emergency fund. But I don't know why, he, what, because is he worried about interest deductions? We are, no. I mean, that is not a rabbit hole I'm even willing to entertain. This, this. <laughs> Tell him I that, said no to that idea. Yeah, that is crazy. Feminist says no. <laughs> those are, those are everybody, you know, I, when I first started my business, of course, I have a business credit card. It's been 19 years now, but at the beginning, you know, I wasn't used to managing my personal life and my business life and God knows what yeah. else. And I missed a payment. And the first time I saw what they charge you in interest, I mean, these are loan shark rates. <laughs> Yeah. And also if you miss a payment and, and somehow it gets put on your credit report, it stays there for like seven years. So I would just say to most people, the best and most efficient way is use your card so you can get your points or whatever, but have auto pay full balance every month. You don't have to think about it. And realize if you have a budget and you have maybe some alerts here and there saying what you're spending, it's boring. And even I don't do this all the time, but you know, you do have to kind of live within your means. And that is the way that you will ultimately have more means to have more money to spend later down the road. I, I run everything through my credit card. So then I get cash back and mm -hmm. I get miles. So I run absolutely everything I possibly can through my credit cards. And I pay the balance off every single month on autopilot, as you said, so that I am pressing no buttons. It's all happening behind the scenes. Yeah. A hundred percent. I also will never use a debit card online. And when I found out that my, I have a bonus daughter and a son. And when I found out that um, I can't remember which one of them had used their debit card to buy a plane ticket, I was like, you are setting yourself up for complete mm -hmm. fraud, exposure, cybersecurity uh, nightmare. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah I mean, mine was really bad. And to the point where my phone number got ported. So like I literally came out of the doctor's office and my phone stopped working. And I was like, well, I paid my bill. What's going on? When I called Verizon, they're, they're like, we've never heard of you. I'm like, I've had an account with you for 10 years. Someone actually took over my phone number, ported it to T-Mobile, became me. All of the um, two-factor identification was now going to them. And they started taking all the money they could out of my bank account. Yeah. Cybersecurity nightmare. Don't do it. 
don't do it. <laughs> don't use your debit cards online, folks, if you take nothing else away from this. Okay, let's go to the next question. <laughs> I'm in my mid-30s and my spouse, same age, does not think we need a savings account. We make plenty of money and she feels hemmed in by having a savings account and says, we have always been able to pay for what we want out of cash flow. So what is the problem? We both have 401ks through our job. So for those of you who aren't in the US, that's simply a retirement account set up by your company that you can contribute to. Now, what they're saying is having a savings account makes her feel hemmed in. Comments? So they're married, correct? Newly married. Um, Okay. So the first thing is, is they should have a prenup and it sounds like they didn't. Um, So that was numero uno mistake. I would like to explain that later or now. The way I think it should go, it's a, so a lot of divorce lawyers will say, and I am going to answer the question about the savings account, but I'm going to get there in a roundabout way. Um, a lot of divorce lawyers today say, or some of them, and one who I recently had an interaction with, is that, you know, you don't need to have a prenup unless you have assets. And it's like, uh, no, duh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, I, what am I, static? I'm not going to earn money from the time I'm 25 until the time I get divorced 40 years later or 10 years later or two years later. That's not true. Everybody should have a prenup. So example, and this is how I'm going to get into this question. My daughter's getting married. My trust says the following, and this goes into estate planning, which I also address in the book, but just roll with me on this. If I pop my clogs today and I'm done, then I three separate property trusts arise in my will. And then each daughter has a separate property trust that their inheritance will go into. If they are married or going to get married, if they or live with somebody, if they don't have a prenup, a postnup, or a cohabitation agreement, they don't get my money. It's as simple as that. So that's the, the kicker. I have a confession. I don't have the perfect diet. I don't have a personal chef. <laughs> I do not eat perfectly whole foods, organic foods day in and day out. What I do do, however, is look for the most nutrient density that I can find in a day. However, what I do to support that and to support my nutrient density every single day is I add Organifi to my diet. That means that in the morning, I will have an Organifi green juice. In the afternoon, I have an Organifi red juice. And in the evenings, Organifi gold. When I'm training for triathlon, I actually mix the green and red juices together so that I can get the energy and the greens that I need. Organifi is now a sponsor of the show and they are giving us 15% off, not just your first order, but 15% off with every order when you use the code ELLA. You know, I only work with advertisers that I personally use. In fact, nine times out of 10, I'm the one reaching out to them. That's what happened here. And Organifi is sponsoring the Live Better Start Now retreat in Miami. Every single participant will get to try their product. I'm excited about that because I want you to have what I'm having. The morning reset, the green juice has 11 powerful ingredients, including ashwagandha, adaptogens, greens, you name it for vitality. The red juice is 
filled with some of the things that Dr. Kara is mentioning in this episode, like beets and antioxidant-rich berries, more adaptogens, including cordyceps and rhodiola to provide natural and sustained energy. And then in the evening, that gold powder that I mentioned that I mix with plant milk, that is for relaxation, reduced inflammation, and it's just a really nice, warm drink to end the day with. These ingredients, these natural supplements, these pure, pure ingredients are helping me and I want them to help you. So if you're looking to add huge nutrient density to your day, but making it really, really easy, then jump on Organifi. Look for their sunrise to sunset package. That's what I have on auto subscribe. But don't forget to use the code Ella. I'll put all the links in the show notes and you can save 15%. Thanks, Organifi. Now, getting back to this question. You need to have this conversation with your partner, but the best practices for having good personal financial, you know, organization and building your net worth is to have a checking account, also to have a savings account that is called an emergency savings account in which you have six months of your fixed expenses saved up. So if there is Armageddon and or somebody gets sick, you can still pay your rent, go on with your life, eat, and so on and so forth. So I would say to the partner, you need to have money that is ring-fenced in a separate account because it's very easy when all the money is flowing around in there to not separate it, not to ring-fence it and to let it kind of, well, maybe I'll spend a little bit more because, hey, I have this big balance on my checking account, right? And it's just like easy pickings. So I would say, number one, this is not a very well-thought-out plan and that they definitely should have a savings account and it should be an emergency savings account, which they have six months worth of funding in. I also think they should be maxing out on their 401k. So if they are contributing, like they said, they should be maxing out. Um, Then the other thing is, is if you want to establish other accounts for like particular things, but for someone who's married like this young couple and what my daughter and I've been discussing, and I think is how is this is going to go down is it um, my daughter uh, is a professional. She's a lawyer. Her husband is a professional and they are going to have, they are not going to commingle all their money the way it sounds like this is happening in this relationship. They're going to have their separate accounts, their separate checking accounts. They're going to have their pay deposited into the separate checking account. Then they're going to create a joint account and they will decide how much goes into that joint account for their expenses and travel or whatever. So that's their commingled checking account. And then they'll also have a commingled savings account, but then they're making Uh, They're making intentional decisions about how they're commingling their money, because once you start to commingle, you can't uncommingle. Okay, that's what's going to happen down the line. So part of why I would say a prenup is important. And there are certain things that you cannot address in a postnup like alimony. So if you want to do that, you must do it in a prenup. But I think why a prenup is important is a it's or a cohabitation agreement if you're just going to live with someone forever is initiates the conversation about exactly these issues, which could grow into issues that can destroy your relationship because you start getting annoyed at each other about how the other person's handling the money. And it also allows you to have some separate money and to have some intentional commingled money. And that to me makes the most amount of sense. Just getting married and saying, let's just have a joint checking account. And I know there are some financial people, influencers out there who says that once you get married, you should commingle everything. I say, don't commingle everything. It doesn't make sense. Be intentional. And so right now, They have everything rolled into one cabal and one person has to, they both, if they're going to open a checking account, they both have to sign the papers for that. So they're not on the same page. 
And over time, as they have financial goals, this will become a problem. So the next question was, should I get a prenup if I don't have a lot of money or assets? And I think we've taken that one on, but I want to add something to that conversation. For those of you who hear that and think, you know, I'm making diddly squat a year. I don't have any assets. You've already answered that one, Kimberly. You said you don't write a prenup for today. You write a prenup for tomorrow. Yeah, it's for tomorrow. But for those of you who hear that and think that is the least romantic thing I've ever heard, I want to share with you what I heard that changed my mind forever and ever. And that was marriage is a contract. So I don't mean that as a metaphor. I don't mean that in the meta sense. I mean, marriage is a contract. And that contract, its terms are are determined by the state that you live in, if you're in the US, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. by your government, wherever you live. So marriage is a legal contract that is dictated by some governing body, and it isn't you. So a prenup is actually you taking control of the contract that already exists. And that changed my mind forever. It's true. And it's, and it's not unromantic. I mean, if you believe in your relationship and that you have, you know, that connection with your partner and you are your authentic self, then you should be able to talk about this because, you know, and this in my, I'll use my daughter because we're in the middle of all this right now with her. But if she steps out of the workforce, even part time, you know, she's not contributing to social security. She's not to the same extent. She may not be contributing to the 401k in the same extent. She's doing invisible labor. She's, you know, she's doing all these things. She's taking a hit on her career development. And so if these are not conceptualized in some way in a contract for someone whose career could really blossom over time, then, and they don't have anything, they're going to leave it to a judge to decide or mediation with someone by that point who might not like you anymore and doesn't give a, a, a hoot about any of the stuff you did for the family or whatever, that is not the best time to be doing this. So I think it is an, a, if you really love each other, it is an expression of unconditional love that you can have this conversation and not be afraid of it because really it's so important. And one other thing I want to say that you mentioned about different states that you live in, right? If you live in a community property state like I do here in California, the way that debt is approached is very different than in an equitable distribution state, for example, like New York. So if I have debt, even if in a prenup, I say I'm not responsible for the other person's debt, um, they that will not hold up under uh, California law. So one of the reasons, and this kind of goes back to credit too, if you are married to somebody or you are about to get married to somebody or live with somebody or, you know, commit undying love to them, check out the credit report or, you know, look at your marital credit report because um, it will tell you a lot. But when you are in a community property state, you cannot negate the existence of your partner's uh, debt. It becomes attributed to you because the state believes that you benefited from it in some way. So say the person doesn't pay it off, even though the the court says you are going to pay X debt and you, partner Z, you're going to pay Y debt. Partner X doesn't pay his debt. The credit card company doesn't give a a hoot at all about your divorce decree, that you will be responsible for that debt. So if you're married, always check your credit report, make sure you know what's going down. If you're about to get married, have a conversation with somebody about what their credit score is. Okay, here's a quickie. Which do I do first, pay off student loan debt or start saving for retirement? Well, I mean, look, I'm a big believer in paying all debt off, but mainly credit card debt before you um, start saving for anything. 
But I also know that student loan debt is just a long uh, commitment. So I think, you know, you need to have some kind of ratio where you have to kind of do both. Um, you know, depending on if you have a match at your 401k, then you're irresponsible by not taking up that free money and using that, you know, kind of tax-free way of saving money, especially if you're young, because that is what's going to save your bacon when you're old, you know, because it's going to have all those years of growth and exponential compounding. But uh, I think you're going to have to come up, you'd have to look at the uh, the total amount of the debt that you have outstanding any other debt. So please don't incur other debt if you can avoid it. And then really just come up with um, like a prorated amount based on your income that you can do both in the most optimal way. I I mean, I'd like to know more about the amount of the debt, but I would say there is a way to do both. I think you'd be, it would really be doing yourself a disservice not to be doing retirement savings because retirement savings is tax efficient. And if you have a match by your employer, it's some free money along the way, which can be very powerful later on. Yeah. And the opportunity cost of missing those early years and that compounding interest over years and years and years. Just even four years can make a tremendous difference. So credit card debt, pay it off. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Credit card debt, pay it off first. When you get into student loans and when you get into other types of longer term debt, then there are ratios to be looked at. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I that would be the rule of thumb that I that I even use that, you know, like you can't do everything, but the retirement thing is important. And I think when you when you think of the fact that, you know, less like 49 percent of people in the United States don't have retirement savings. And that's pretty shocking. And that's people like over 55, I believe. And so this is a scary thing, right? You don't want to be living your whole life on social security when you're a retired person. And if you're really young now, who even knows if social security will be around then? So you have to really come up with plan B. And I think, you know, obviously you got to pay the student debt down, but, um, you know, you have you can you can string that out a bit and you know and still be saving in your 401k and an IRA. I mean IRAs, you know, you can only put six grand in a year, but it's better than nothing. Next question. I make a decent living and I want my money to be making money for me, but I have absolutely no idea where to start. Besides funding my retirement account and having a savings account, where do I get started if I want to invest? This is not something that I want to do on my own, but I'm not so wealthy that I would have a financial manager. Right. So this is a question I think that many people grapple with. Um, so again, go back to the, you know, to the fundamentals of the infrastructure, make sure you have no credit card debt, make sure you have six months of emergency savings sitting in liquid cash. I do not believe in investing that. Others may want to debate me on that, but they're wrong. Um, so have that once you have that and you mac- you're maxing out on your retirement savings, then you can open what they call a taxable account, which is an investment account. Um, it's either in your individual name or you can have it in a trust if you have your own trust. Um, and you basically can go, you know, I am a big, I'm not a big believer in kind of market timing and the Robin Hoods of the world and, and group think and like, you know, my friend invests in Lululemon because she wears Lululemon. No, you need to do more, you know, you need to do kind of either fundamental investing 
and doing a little bit of homework. But, you know, obviously you could go to Fidelity Investments or Vanguard or any of those places. They have a lot of, you know, Elvest if you want to do a robo type thing, but they also have educational platforms and they will provide you with like online advisors you can ask questions to. So there's, a, and then it's about diversification. So if you're going to do funds or an index fund, make sure the funds are diversified within industry and sectors. And that way, you know, you're going to have kind of a, a diversified portfolio. But you can start small with an ETF or a, a, a mutual fund, and you can go to any of these platforms. You can invest fractional money. You can start with as little as like 50 bucks and many of them, even less. Yeah, I want to add a gentle edit to this listener's question because she says, I'm not so wealthy that I would have a financial manager. And I just want to offer, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Kimberly, but um, you absolutely do not have to be wealthy to seek financial management. No, you don't. And I mean, that's the other thing is that people think you have to be, you know, a billion dollar, you know, client, or even if you like watch TV and, you know, Fisher Investments will say if you have $500,000 in calls, but there are plenty of other advisors. Like you can go onto the Schwab platform and not have a lot of money and still have conversations with advisors that are provided for you. And then you can grow over time, but there are, and, or you could, the other thing you could do is go to a financial planner. There are a lot of people that all they do is financial planning and they charge you a one-time fee for that do your plan, and then they can help you like structure exactly what you have as far as free money for investment and the best way to invest to accomplish the goals of what you're trying to accomplish. But I am a big believer in education. You do need to know why you're investing in something. A stock is a representation of a company with a balance sheet and a cash flow. Uh, it's not, you know, it, it shouldn't be about, um, you know, sentiment. So you you kind of need to understand some of those concepts. And all of those platforms do have a lot of education embedded in them. Yeah, I want to ask you about resources that you recommend, Kimberly, but I would like to add something again from experience, not authority here. And that is that asking people you know and trust for references or for referrals is how everyone I know found their financial manager. <laughs> so yeah. there, there are starter resources, which are fantastic. And as you said, a number of resources online from very established companies. But I, I have to say, if you are in a position where you're now earning a living, you feel good about it, you have disposable income and you're saving, but you know you're missing out on having your money make money, please ask three people that you know, like, and trust who they use or who they recommend. And I did that and I made a bad decision. And then I made the best decision of my entire life and have been in fantastic hands for years now. And it changed my life. It changed the whole trajectory of my husband's and my planning in our future. That's mm-hmm. how much of And I assure you, we did not bring her $6 million. <laughs> no, I mean, look, you can have, you know, $50,000, $25,000, um, you just need to get started. You can have $500. And I would say, if you want to start investing and it's over and above your emergency fund, you know, there are many platforms that are established platforms that have, you know, the ability to literally invest 50 bucks. And if you put it on an automated thing where you're putting, you know, hundred bucks a month into it or whatever, it will continue to grow and grow. And, but you just, you know, use the resources of, that are there, read about what the different funds represent. And, you know, I, um, I, I love the idea of, um, 
income. I, we are at the Bonson Group, we are big believers in the dividend growth type investing and high yielding cash flow generative uh, portfolios, because there's a lot of reinvestment of that if you're not taking it out as a distribution. And that affords you with a lot of compounded growth. And if you know, you know, it's a, it's a less uh, riskier way of having growth and income. But each you know, there's a million different philosophies out there, but if you don't want to use an advisor, there is enough information in these various, uh, Fidelity has courses and webinars and, you know, so many things that you can look into if you just want to read about, well, what is an index fund? And, you know, what does diversification mean? I explained a little bit of that in my book so that you have the fundamentals of the, the precepts of a good portfolio and what that should look like. And obviously, as you evolve and you get more and more money, then the way that the strategy works will maybe you won't own funds, you'll own, you know, individual holdings. Um, I also believe, you know, diversification is really what it's all about. So I'm not a big fan of people investing in crypto. Um, I don't think it is a real investment. I think it's had a real meltdown. And I think it's like meme stocks and anything else. It's all based on sentiment and there's nothing real there. So don't try to get rich quick. Don't follow what your neighbor is doing. If he says, you know, who cares what he's investing in? Don't watch CNBC and Fox and listen to everybody on there. Um, just do your own homework, do your own due diligence, and just read a few things to get the basic fundamentals of what a diversified portfolio looks like. And ask for recommendations for advisors and then check into their credentials because not all advisors are created equal. When they're good, they're very, very good. And when they're bad, they are horrid. <laughs> yeah, if someone can't explain to you what their strategy is and why, and they don't talk to you about diversified a diversified portfolio and they don't run a financial plan for you, then you need to think about exiting stage left and finding somebody else. You answered the very last question already. So I just am going to highlight your question. I'm just going to highlight your answer. And that question was, what is the best way to save and not live month to month? And you, uh, without realizing it, answered that question, in my opinion, because by setting things up to auto distribute, it takes zero willpower and zero effort. So if I were this person and I was not saving and I was living month to month, I would quite simply figure out what it, what I needed to live on. I would then take the extra and have it auto deposit into my savings account. And I, I would highly recommend that this person, and I just had a conversation with my middle daughter about this, um, who lives in LA, is that you, you know, budgeting is easy. I've said to her, read chapter five again in my book. Um, you have to budget. And budget is a snooze fest. I know everyone's like, I don't want to budget. Well, I didn't want to budget for a long time. And then I realized I have to budget because I'm like, I was up against it when I was going through my divorce and I had school fees. And, you know, I was like literally and the divorce wasn't going forward, right, and taking forever. So I had no cash flow. Like I'm like no cash flow, like selling my jewelry to pay rent kind of thing. All I can say is a budget will let you know the two things that anyone should ever care about is how much money do I have coming in and how much money is going out and what the heck am I spending on the money going out? So if you, if you don't want to do mint or you don't want to do the plethora of other amazing budgeting apps that are out there that are free, then just put, turn your computer on, go on to Excel and just make a list of everything you spend, fixed costs. Everything that you spend, uh, all the money that you're making, and then you say, okay, I have to spend this amount to keep a roof over my head and to eat. And then here's this other money. What the heck am I doing with that? And if you're spending all of that and more, it means that you're using your credit cards to cover the, the deficit and you need to cut that out. 
You need to pay down your debt with what the extra money. You need to get a little discipline. And then at some point, you will then you and then you can put spending alerts like on some of these budgeting apps that will say, you said this is how much you're going to spend for the month. You know, danger, danger. You are now spending more than that over the, this month. So cut it out, you know, but at least you can have some things in place that will help you. So automation is important, but you need to know your budget so that you know what to set up your automation to be. So if you don't budget that, that is the, that is literally the cornerstone of all financial health, period. You've got to start with the budget before you do anything else. And I'll be honest with you, Kimberly, just to keep it real, for some people, starting with a budget might even begin with just the two most important numbers that you need to be literate about, and that is how much you bring in and how much you put out. If you only think about that the first time you think about a budget, I'm going to be very happy for you. And if I knew you, I'd send you a bottle of champagne. But the next thing you have to do is say, okay, like, why am I living paycheck to paycheck? What, you know, because then you're curious, right? You already know the first two numbers and you're like, okay, well, wait a minute. How come I have nothing left at the end of the month? And then you sit down and you look at, okay, my rent's X, my utilities are Y, my car payment is this, my insurance is that. Okay, and now I have this amount of money. Oh, right, I bought, you know, 15 lattes. I bought a pair of shoes that I probably could have gotten cheaper. I, you know, I went out to dinner 16 times in the last month. Those things we don't think about, right? If we're some going back to the lady who doesn't want to have a savings account, when you have a cash flow in your checking account, you're like, oh yeah, you know, we can do this, we can do that. But if you have a budget and you know exactly what's coming in and coming out, you'll be like, okay, I'm getting, you know, maybe I can only go out five times a month for dinner. And maybe I can only buy, you know, $150 pair of shoes instead of $400 pair of shoes. And maybe I don't have to buy all of my vegetables at Whole Foods. Maybe I can go somewhere else that's slightly cheaper. I don't know, but there's that's ways, a bridge you know? too far, Kimberly. I know, I know. We all love Whole Foods. It's kind of it's like an addiction, but you know, there are ways and means. But you just need to have the knowledge, and even if you do it in baby steps, it's it's just so empowering when you start to see your savings account grow, and you're not at the end of the month thinking, "Can I fill my gas tank up?" Or do I have to pay my phone bill? Who wants to do that every month? It's stressful. It's not good. Kimberly, I want to have you back on to talk about how relationships are affected by money and what we should be doing to have those healthy money conversations. So I'm inviting the listeners to send me your questions related to anything we've talked about today or and or specifically around relationships and relationship dynamics when it comes to money. Um, Kimberly, where do you like to be found? Where can people find you? You can find me um, at The Fiscal Feminist on Instagram. You can find me at fiscalfeminist.com. That is my website that has all the blogs, podcasts. Oh, and then you can also listen to my podcast on any of your podcast platform, which is The Fiscal Feminist. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you so much, Ella, for having me. Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or get the show notes and all the links shared today at onairella.com. There's no with, it's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.